On today's episode of the ENCODA Legislative Interview Series, bonus episodes of the PQI podcast, I sit down with Allison Rollins, the Senior Government Relations Manager at the U.S. Oncology Network. Allison is experienced in state advocacy and has a demonstrated history of working in the healthcare and medical specialty nonprofit organization industry. We discuss all things in and around the world of legislative oncology. All right, welcome back to another legislative uh, interview episode. Uh, today we have Allison Rollins joining me. Uh, Allison is a senior government relations manager at the U.S. Oncology Network. So, Allison, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it's a privilege. Thank you so much for asking me. Yeah. So, first off, I want to talk a little bit about you and your career. Um, my background uh, was with the uh, New York State Legislature, and uh, coming up um, in those. Uh, legislative avenue. So I'm always fascinated about how people get their start and where that passion for legislative work comes in. So I was curious for you, was it something that was always uh, ingrained in you in a sense in terms of having this passion for legislative affairs, or is it something that developed on um, as you got a little bit older? Well, I would say I was always very fascinated by uh, political science, um, just sort of the understanding of how a bill becomes a law and then how people interact with that process. And then, you know, really analyzing the intent behind the bill and if that really does translate over into policy success and if that intent is really put forward by, by, by the law that was passed. Um, so I would say that was sort of the thought process when I went into school, when I was in when I graduated high school and I went to college, I always knew I wanted to do something political science related. But I think at the time I was more interested in international relations. So I went to school, went to school abroad. I went to a university in Spain that gave bilingual degrees. So I did all four years there. Half of my degree was in Spanish, half was in English. And I thought, you know, I'm gonna go into the foreign service. This would be really cool. And I did my master's in Brussels with the European Union. So the school that I went to is a pretty prestigious uh, Belgian school, and I had the opportunity to work with the European Parliament and the European Commission to analyze um, some of their legislative processes. And it's, it's really very interesting the way that they introduced uh, bills. It's completely different from the way the United States does it. It's all very uh, research heavy on the beginning. And then their commission proposes legislative language to the parliament and the parliament really deals with lobbyists and interest groups to discuss how they want to put bills forward. So my thesis was really looking into analyzing how their legislative process works and if it could translate into policy successes. Now, I didn't end up going into the Foreign Service, obviously. Um, I actually, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. I had to move home. And I think that's probably why I got into health policy when I got back to the States, is I was just so fascinated and kind of consumed by trying to navigate my own patient experience that um, I, I was really trying to, to see how I could advocate and make a difference here in the States. So I moved in with my parents who lived in Maryland. And I was sitting in a local coffee shop, sort of, down the street from where my parents lived. And this gentleman walks in and he sees me stressing over my resume and just very sweetly, uh, man in his seventies, just sits down across from me. And he says, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm trying to find a job. I'm looking into politics, my background's in politics. We have this conversation and he says, well, um, I'm state Senator Ron Young. I really need a legislative aid. Will you send me your resume and you can have an interview tomorrow? And I just thought, wow, okay. So, and, and 
and I find out later that he does this every Saturday. Every Saturday morning, he walks across the street to this coffee shop and he finds someone new to talk to. And that's just his thing. He loves it. And so he was my first employer in the political sphere. And sort of every exciting opportunity I got out of that, I said yes to, and here I am. That's amazing. That's uh, like divine intervention. Or you right. would hear that in like a, a movie script or something like that. A guy goes into a coffee shop and give somebody a, a chance that's awesome I, it, it's funny you mentioned uh not funny but ironic in a sense so I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease as well and uh as a kid and I started to read a bunch of uh political um I guess political memoirs or uh biographies about uh presidents and that's how I got really fascinated in uh the legislative world or the political world and um that's interesting. I was, it's definitely uh, a common thread. The more I talk to a lot of advocates who weren't always, you know, wanting to be a pharmacist or wanting to be a physician or a nurse, um, just a lot of the lay people advocates, it's really like the same story. It's something happened in our lives that really forced us into this healthcare system. And the more down the rabbit hole we got, the more we wanted to be involved. In yeah, that's exactly how it was for me in terms of I got sick. I was doing a lot of time in the hospital doing some IV treatments and uh, a way to pass time was to read. And that's how I got interested in the world of uh, politics, which eventually led me to uh, working in uh, legislative affairs. So that's always interesting to me. And I I, I, I was, you know, doing obviously a little bit of research about your career and um, I was I was fascinated to see in your role before joining US Oncology Network, um, you were focused on state advocacy and that's basically what ENCODA is focused on right now with our legislative uh, initiatives is developing uh, our state legislative tracker, but also um, focusing in on state advocacy as a whole. So. Can you talk a little bit about how important it is for, you know, I think a lot of times we think of advocacy efforts and we think of the federal level, but how important is it for uh, that state advocacy to be represented for people to be a voice for uh, state legislation, specifically when it's impacting oncology? Oh, I think it's more powerful than people realize. Um, anything from impact to your small business if you're an independent physician who's running your own practice or if you're just a member of your practice that has you know like a stakeholdership in it I mean it truly does impact you kind of on every level at, at the state um, a lot of people don't really know this but um, state departments of insurance they actually regulate a majority of health insurance by plan, not necessarily by capitation, but by plan. I'd say anywhere between 30 to 35% of insured individuals are on state health plans, whether that's because they work for the state or because it's a state regulated health plan or because it's Medicaid. Um, and so a lot of your patient populations too, whether you realize it or not, um, some of the policies that are going through at the state level are really the ones that would protect them the most. And honestly, as it relates to um, states, I mean, if you imagine states are little mini Congresses and they work three to four times as fast as the United States Congress, you gotta be on top of it to really see what's happening and 
make change and it, it's sort of really people don't really think too much about what's happening very quickly in their locality because they're very focused on the federal level. But honestly, a lot of Congress people are asking what's going on in my state? Has my state passed this piece of legislation? And they're almost looking at some of the issues that we talk about today as how do I review what's going on in all 50 states to see what the best standard would be? And they're almost thinking of it like, well, we need more data from the states in order to make positive, good, impactful policy at the congressional level. And so by being a part of state advocacy, we're really setting the standard for what Congress could consider. Yeah, that's super important. Can you, um, I want to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit, you know, before we get into some specific questions that I have regarding issues that our membership's facing, but I want to give you the opportunity maybe to talk a little bit about all the great work that you're doing now uh, in your current role. Um, obviously, we uh, have a mutual uh, co-worker, I guess, in a sense, with Ben Jones, who serves on our uh, Legislative and Policy Advisory Committee here at ENCODA. So I'm aware of all the great things that your organization is doing, but um, I think our audience would love to hear a little bit about everything that's been going on and uh, how busy you all have been. Sure. Um, so for context, I work for the U.S. Oncology Network. We are um, we have sort of a vendor relationship with the uh, a whole bunch of independent um, oncology practices, community oncology practices across the states. So we support um, I think it's over 400 practices across the United States with about 1,400 physicians. Um, I represent and support the practices that are pretty much east of the Mississippi River. Um, and so that totals, we have about 25 states total, I think, and I'm in about 14 of them. But for the states where we don't have practices, I still monitor legislation. Now, the big thing for our team, if we were, look, we're reviewing state legislation, we're really looking for bills that could impact that physician-patient relationship. It is all about maintaining the capability to provide the highest quality care at the most affordable cost to patients where they are at in their communities. So um, mm -hmm. our highest priorities are bills that really intervene in the ability for a physician and a patient to create a treatment plan that works for them. So I'm working on a lot of pharmacy benefit manager related legislation, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, but I also work on some patient out of pocket costs to maintain affordability. And I also work on some issues that are related to, you know, like the community practice of oncology, because these are independent practices or small businesses a lot of times within the states. And so I do monitor small business legislation as well, just to be sure that it is still um, compatible with the ability to provide care. And sometimes that does overlap with pharmacy benefit manager issues. Yeah, so this is a great segue into pharmacy benefit managers. And um, for all of you listening to this, um, I'm sure some of you are aware that Allison uh, participated in a PBM discussion that ENCODA had at our spring forum in Atlanta, which was one of the best received presentations of the entire uh, forum. Um, but I do want to talk a little bit about pharmacy benefit managers. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think a lot of the time, you know, from my perspective, at least when I hear politicians or uh, debates occurring on TV and the healthcare issue comes up, we hear a lot of time um, 
these voices uh, talking about the negative impact that uh, the drug manufacturers have. And we never really hear about pharmacy benefit managers and how that impacts patients being able to receive their medication or even for the drug to get to market. So do you think that, uh, that the, that the PBMs fly under the radar and, and how important is it for groups like Encoda and the work that you're doing to be vocal about, about the PBM system and how reform is needed, uh, in that entire industry? So I wouldn't say in recent years they fly under the radar in the sense that at this point everybody knows the term pharmacy benefit manager. Every state legislature that I go to, they are either, they've either worked very, very hard to sort of increase transparency around these, um, these companies or they're in the process of figuring out how they can do that and how they can make it work within their own state regulatory system. But I mean, in the sense they in a sense, they do fly under the radar if you consider that their business practices are very, very incredibly opaque. And if you consider just how vertically integrated they really are and how many fingers they have and how many pies. And I think to put it in perspective, it's really important to remember that pharmacy benefit managers are kind of the middleman. Their vendor relationship is with either the plans themselves or with the companies that are purchasing the plans. So only in an indirect way do they really have accountability for the patients that they provide care for. It is all about cost control mechanisms. Their entire role is to control the utilization of the different covered medications and covered services that they have within the plan to try and keep it within a cost that's palatable to them. Um, So naturally, in all of those tools that they use for cost control, um, a lot of times they don't have clinical evidence that is backing it. A lot of times it just has to do with we have paid way too much money for such and such service. How do we create a cost control mechanism on this service? And that kind of prior authorization seems to be the go-to. And so for us as advocates, advocating for the physicians and for the patients that they treat and for the whole care team in general to continue to provide high quality care without running into those barriers, we really do need quite a bit of transparency. And you'll see in states that when they, I've noticed that it's been a trend over the years. One of the first things that states do when they start analyzing pharmacy benefit managers is to try and get transparency on the data. Uh, For example, we talked about Ohio at ENCODA when um, when they looked into the PBMs that were servicing their Medicaid program, they really needed to get transparency on what claims were being covered, on what the spread pricing was, so that that differential that the PBM was pocketing. Um, And having that transparency really helps them understand what policies they need to target next. So you can kind of predict almost in a way that you're monitoring all legislation across the states during during session, which states are more likely to file anti-steering mandate, which states are more likely to be tackling step therapy and prior authorization and really getting into the plan design. Um, And I think it's super interesting because there are trends that you can see where if 
um, a, a bill takes off in a state and it does really well and you can watch the implementation and see if it's actually having an effect. Legislators across states talk to each other right. and they see what's working and they will wanna see what they can do to get that in their own state. So do you think, I mean, I, I agree with you completely and I think that there's parity uh, in terms of legislation from state to state. I mean, is the hope, and I mean, this would be probably my, my, my view of it is that if you get enough traction in state from state by state, that maybe you will see a federal reform law come across. Is that the hope when you, when you start to see enough traction from each state on an issue like PBMs? Honestly, I hope it's concurrent. Um, I think because PBM issues are so complex, there are going to be aspects of it that are top down that will come from Congress and just standardize the way we do things across the state. There will be aspects of it that are very niche and really do need to be um, specialized, I guess, to the populations that are within individual states. So those will, of course, be bottom up and probably Congress will need data from the states to really analyze what the standards should be. And I think it should be more of like a collaborative relationship, like both things happening at the same time. And one of the key things that should be a part of my role, and I should be tasking people who are also in the same boat of leading state advocacy, is really educating advocates on what portions of this really need to be done at the state level and what they can do and what power their voices have mm. um, and what should be done at the federal level and what power their voices have there too. So it's really, in my thoughts, equal partnership yeah. at the same time. So let me ask you this, and I, I've, I've heard this from a few members of ENCODA um, that are passionate about uh, legislative advocacy, and they are outspoken advocates for their patients. How important is it for a physician, a pharmacist, a nurse, anybody involved with that direct patient care um, to get involved and to be an advocate for their patient. Um, I think you've, you've probably seen this in terms of various legislation and it being passed and getting moved uh, through quicker than, than other states. How important is it to have uh, these people that have boots on the ground with their patients be vocal advocates for the patients to, to let lawmakers know some of the struggles that these patients are facing um, under the current system? Incredibly important. And I think especially when you have disease states like oncology, it becomes even more important that the care team steps forward as an advocate because the patients are already taking off work and they're already taking, unfortunately with children, they're already taking off school to get their treatments. Mm -hmm. And so for them to have to be a patient advocate and take off work again and go down to the legislature and they're tired and they're, you know, they're, they're ill. And the, it is a much larger ask to ask your patients to advocate for themselves mm-hmm. than it is to say, speak to your patients, ask them what they care about, ask them what's working, ask them what isn't, and be an advocate for them as their voice and as your coordinated voice. And I think legislators are so, they're craving to hear from people within the physician-patient relationship. They hear from health plans all the time. They hear from PBMs all the time. But what's really impactful, especially in the community oncology setting, is not only are you constituents, you are small business owners within those constituencies. So you have that added layer, but also you're an expert in your field and you have direct 
conversations with the patients that this policy will impact. So there is no one more ideal than the care team who actually interacts with these patients to come in and speak about these issues. And just for example, one of the issues that I'm working on quite a bit right now is um, bills that would prohibit mandatory white bagging policies. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm sure most people listening to this know what white bagging is, but it's really just diversion of um, uh, infusion medications. So they would no longer be um, mixed at the physician office site, but instead be mixed at, ideally according to the PBMs, their own internal specialty pharmacies and then shipped pre-mixed right. to whatever the site of dispensation is. Um, and so, yeah, obviously there are quite a few quality concerns with that. There's definitely concerns about delays because it's very, very difficult to predict 60 hours in advance. I think a PBM in Ohio told me that it takes them 60 hours to process and prepare a, a prescription. So there's no way that they could same day do a change in dose and get it to you that day. There has to be a delay. Um, we've noticed in a lot of our practices that there are between 25 and 30% of patients that come in to get their chemotherapy in the morning, they get their weight taken, they get their um, blood tested, and the dose is no longer appropriate that they had submitted to the PBM. So the dose needs to change on that same day, and the delays that same-day dose changes can cause can be horrific for cancer patients. And I think having the whole care team that's involved from infusion nurses saying, I'm very uncomfortable with dispensing this inappropriate dose or this drug that I didn't mix myself to physicians explaining just the overall impact to of treatment delays to the care team. It's critical for framing these sort of discussions as truly um, a, a, a clinical issue because if we don't, if we are unable to come in and make that case and voice those concerns, then all they're hearing is that PBMs and plans want to make cost controls. And this is the easiest way that they can control costs by controlling markups, as we call it. And that should not be at the cost of a patient's life. It should not be at the cost of a patient's quality of care. Um, and as you know, the community oncology setting is the lowest cost setting. There's data out there that shows that mixing these drugs in office and providing them to the patient in office with the same quality controls that we have always had in our status quo um, is cheaper to the system overall than white bagging on many of the drugs that are typically white bagged. Um, it's really a site of service cost issue and it's sort of like a blanket policy that they're just throwing out there for all of oncology. But, but it, without having the voice of the physician and the voice of the care team in the room to explain that yeah. we are the cheapest cost setting, we still provide the same quality of care. And we do that by mixing on site and providing integrated care on site. Yeah. yeah. I, the legislators won't get that. They won't understand it. So Thank you for that, because I think it's super important for our membership to understand and to hear that. And I know we're coming up on time here, but I want to ask you one more question. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a follow-up to, to our last question. I think the frustrating thing sometimes for physicians and patients, even pharmacists, nurses, is seeing quality legislation um, that either A, can't get passed, or 
maybe even more frustrating uh, for advocates of PBM reform is seeing legislation get passed, but it doesn't take effect in real practice. Can, from my perspective, I have seen, you know, certain bills that I worked on personally take a long time uh, to get passed and to get put into action. Can you just maybe give some words of encouragement um, regarding that legislative po uh, process and um, the momentum that you've seen with PBM reform throughout the country? That is frustrating. It is certainly an exercise in patience and an exercise in dedication to be an advocate at the state level, um, especially considering that the education that you're doing is for your average neighbors on the street. It's for people who would normally be teachers, cops. Um, some of them are doctors. Most of them are insurance agents or lawyers or come from backgrounds that lend themselves to, from, to being able to do part-time legislatures throughout the year. Um, and so you sort of have an uphill battle. It's You have to treat these uh, legislators like they know nothing about your issue and the work that you would have to put in to do the education to make them understand that issue can be really time consuming. And I know that that it's sort of like disappointing when it takes multiple sessions to get something through and you have to start what feels like from scratch. But I will say, think of it as a long game. Think of it as these patients will continue to need you to advocate them for the entirety of the time that they are your patient. Um, and you are really the best voice to continue to do this for them. Now, when it comes to when you have a bill filed and you are lucky and you can get that passed, hopefully in the first session, but sometimes it takes years and it goes into implementation. I think there's two components here that we need to remember. Implementation is another ball game. So you need to stay continuously advocating during implementation as well. The law will go to rules. Um, sometimes there will be an additional set of regulations that are made based on the law. And there will be public comment periods that you still need to engage with and make sure that you are a part of continuing that intention. So if the law is passed with one intention, you need to continue that intention into the regulation to make sure that it goes into full force in the way that you want it to. But also there's a really complex framework of who these laws could affect. And I would not be discouraged if it doesn't have as impactful an effect as you want. Sometimes it, these laws only apply to Medicaid or these laws only apply to state regulated health plans that are specifically just for teachers or whatever those caveats are that were on the bill in the first place. I would say, just keep in mind, whatever is passed will create data. And that is a precedent for just the next step. All we have to do is just the next hard thing and that win will make it even better for the next one. And that I think is very motivating for the long game. Allison, thank you so much. Uh, I think that's a great advice to end on. And um, I appreciate you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be with us. Um, and thank you again for forum, but also thank you just for being here and further educating our membership. I know it means a lot to me, but it also means a lot to uh, all of Encoda as well. So thank you so much for being with us. 
Yeah, thank you. I'm happy to anytime. I hope you all enjoyed my conversation with Allison. To listen to the rest of the interview series, along with the PQI podcast, you can find it on Spotify and Apple or online at the ENCODA website. That's ncoda.org, ENCODA.org. Thank you again to Allison for joining us today. And thank you to ENCODA for making this interview series possible. Thanks, everybody.